0: Back in the pod zone, I feel I feel the vibes now. That we've heard the music, is it? so, It's resets. Even after mm. a couple
1: of weeks of break, it's good yeah. to be back at it. Mm. And with a lot of juicy, mm. at the perfect time, in the nick of time. The perfect time. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I watched the Meghan and Harry interview yesterday evening. Did you watch it? I watched of, it as it came yesterday out
0: yesterday in the day. I think. Yeah, I
1: think it came out in America before England, which yeah. is also sort of an interesting. Well, it's a really it, it's sort of the, the fact that they recorded it in America and with Oprah and, and the way that they did it is a very mm. clever like a clever way of doing yeah. it. I think.
0: And so we're, yeah, we're 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 breaking our mini absence with an entirely uncontroversial topic to come back in gently. <laughs> exactly. well we would yeah exactly we don't we don't
1: want to we don't want to jump into it yeah. um it's actually a really interesting like interesting moment for it to all happen when i'm just been trying to kind of familiarize myself with the monarchy a bit more yeah. um and understand the structure of it and so now i find myself looking at sort of 300 years of history <laughs> trying to quickly catch up i've also been extremely distracted by american sort of history recently mm. um for some reason it, it sort of almost feels like dirty sort of mm. it's like fast food um yeah. american history um <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i'm um kind of yeah i've been distracted and i mean to be honest british history isn't any better it's more like uh yeah. <laughs> it's some other thing that's worse but i have done a bit of background i've got this kind of interesting timeline set of tabs open in front mm. of me which take us from roughly the english civil war through to now-ish mm. um so that might be interesting to go through yeah, as well but,
0: but in the, i think this moment was very effective at uh generating the kinds of stuff that you're looking at now in the sense that like i see a parallel with the blm movement and the kind of conversations it sparked and the thoughts it sparked around like race re- race relations and policing and stuff in a similar way this mm. kind of thing mm. is is generating those kind of conversations, those kind of research and shifting opinion and stuff is just one of those moments, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. I um yesterday, after watching the interview, typed in to Google sort of uh, abolish the monarchy and yeah. sort of just to see what and, and immediately found that it was trending and everything was going yeah. on. So you can hope that it would be a moment that a lot of people start. Look, I mean, I'm I, that's another thing. You've got to be optimistic and hope that a lot of people do then go and read up about it rather than, yeah. than just engage in the discourse on Twitter and sort of kind of get angry about something that they're not f- fully familiar with it yeah. like that's what we can hopefully help with because um there's stuff to be angry about but let's be familiar with it yeah yeah
0: <laughs> and I, I will take it step by step um, because those kind of things that you're talking about are seen as very radical in the mainstream of this country
1: yeah that's true especially when the majority of the papers um and the tabloids are sort of the the culprits for yeah. a lot of well a lot of what has caused this in the first place mm. um i'd be interested in you probably know more than me about the the relationship between the press and and the royal family yeah. or at least i so i'm aware that they sort of have uh, some interesting things there that we, we can talk mm-hmm. about briefly as well there's so um, much there's so much to
0: unpack in in every direction mm-hmm. there's interesting stuff to talk about really here
1: mm-hmm. well where do we want to start then do we want to start with a timeline or something more
0: current should we start with the situation that's just happened and then yes um just go into what what kind of emerges
1: let's do that so i took notes whilst i was watching the interview oh well um, done just with kind of key yeah i mean i'm probably going to make no sense of them right now so um this will be interesting but and so probably as i go through them it's a bit of a a, to some extent a sweep of what happened in the interview that said i only really took things that i kind of wanted to go away and research so i'm probably missing some massive things that are actually the more contentious points which Uh i sort of felt more familiar with anyway and so didn't note them down yeah Um, so we'll find out if I've missed things I just actually found it really interesting I I don't think I heard it before coined as the firm
0: Mm. it's
1: like a mafia sort of yeah um, isn't it
0: yeah so yeah so we're just going to talk kind of generally about this topic specifically in this episode aren't we and go through lots of different stuff I even even think it'd be interesting talking about our knowledge before because you know we've been living in Britain our, our whole lives and um, that's also just useful context mm. <laughs> our baggage is we're english <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty heavy baggage yeah could barely lift it <laughs> well, that's why we don't leave our houses
1: houses anymore has the lockdown finished? <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that's true well actually i guess on that note my experience uh, my knowledge was i think i i i who knows what the average um sort of amount of knowledge on the subject is but I would say it's, it was probably that you know mm. isn't it, it felt quite sort of school edu- like sort of English school education of the monarchy mm. I sort of grew up knowing about it and not probably questioning yeah. it much and the fact that I didn't question it meant I probably didn't learn as much about it as I could have done I, I actually sort of probably thought and assumed that they had less of a role in certain aspects oh, yeah. to what I've more recently, found out too. that they have a role in.
0: Yeah, that. yeah, I was similar. I, I think I even knew definitely less than average, and definitely about them specifically. Like I couldn't really even name who was who, and I would always get yeah. mixed up between them. I, w- I wasn't very interested.
1: But like me too, like two years ago, and then I watched The Crown, and that kind of helped a yeah, bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's even context. Have you seen all of that? Like up to where they are now? I actually haven't. I've got a series or more um to catch up on but when I say it helped I'm not saying that I take it as fact as yeah. in everything that's in the crown what I mean is in terms of the family and the relationships and just sort of who who the, like who was in the royal family that kind of helped with because I had the same thing I couldn't I didn't know who was Charles and who was Philip and everything and I,
0: I was always confused like I, I to me at the time they both looked about the same age so I was confused about how <laughs> one was the son of <laughs> the other of the dad. yeah, yeah. They, yeah. Um, and so in the same way as you I kind of was probably softly pro- monarchy. Because I thought they were interesting and kind of old-fashioned in a way that was quite interesting, and I didn't realize like what their role was really, and so I thought they were just quite a cool thing. I think that yeah, I didn't actually
1: think it as many in as many words as that, but then have now realized I probably was softly pro because of the fact that I thought like I mean a weird a weirdly probably common argument that's pro monarchy is that they're good for tourism.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Isn't it? I, I think that's a kind of a pretty common way of sort of saying, "Well, that you know they cost this much, but they bring in so much tourism." Yeah, that's kind of the com- that's the depth of the conversation I'd probably had pre- like prior to a year or two ago.
0: Yeah, and and that's like one of the most common defenses you hear.
1: Mm. I think that's possibly because you like one of the main objections that happens is the fact they cost the taxpayer, mm. and then the quick argument that seems to have kept itself alive is the fact that they also bring in money um for through those other means but that's when the conversation doesn't go beyond the surface as to sort of what role are they playing and i think that's the sort of the thing that this is bringing and again
0: that's like an area that's very contested and did you watch that video i sent you a while ago um that was like the cgp gray one and the um response
1: uh go further than that um
0: the cgp gray video is about the monarchy and like the advantages of Don't it think we did. it's like a very sh- it's a very short video by him that basically comes to the conclusion the monarchy are good leave them alone ah. and then there was a response video by this guy called sean who i think is a very good video to watch kind of goes through every point that he makes quite flippantly and kind of deconstructs it and argues against it and it's called something to do with abolition i'll have a look we- at that we can put that in the show notes uh maybe yeah do that yeah, okay. So, I mean, that's
1: that's the, probably my baggage checked in on that mm. note. Is there anything else that you sort of were thinking?
0: No, I think I just thought it was kind of quite quaint and kind of quite nice, really. Because like, I remember the um, like the coronation. Was it the anniversary yeah. of the coronation? That sounds about right. I mean, I, my biggest... It's got mugs and stuff from it. Mm,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: There's like parties in the park and things like that. Okay, you
1: maybe were involved in more of those things than than me, because I don't have that many memories. That maybe I think as a child, I remember the Queen's mum dying. It's sort of that's my childhood memory of the the royal family. Yeah, um, yeah, and and I know that my family, like as in my grandma and stuff, like kind of you know had the natural sort of um, yeah uh, fondness for the, the royal family mm. and stuff. So I, I grew up in that.
0: Yeah, and it's seeming more and more obvious, like with the kind of discourse that's emerging from this event, is that it's really generational. Yet again, yeah. like it seems pretty much the support for the royal family is, you know, almost ubiquitous in the kind of elderly generation, mm-hmm. and then kind of slips a tiny bit among the kind of boomer generation, and then is quite questioned the younger you get. You could probably track that through the the papers and what yeah.
1: those what lines those. Papers toe because I'm pretty sure the Telegraph is quite pro um, monarchy. That's a really sweeping statement, though, on my part without much context. But I kind of re- actually, when you watch the interview and all the clippings that come across the screen, you yeah, know, they're, they're pretty much Telegraph, Sun, Mirror, aren't they?
0: Yeah, I think it's quite safe to say that the vast majority of the right-wing press are very pro monarchy. I'm pretty sure that's that's very safe to say. Oh yeah, the other funny thing is that republicanism—the term for wanting a system without a monarchy and like an elected head of state is kind of seen as a left-wing position. But when you talk about British Republicans, they are left-wing people, and obviously Republicans in America are the right-wing
1: party. Do you think they confuse that language in order to sort of blur the line between? I mean, I just think
0: that makes it so much harder to engage in um, the conversation, doesn't it? I see what you mean, but I, I think I think that one in particular is quite yeah historic, wedded to context because America is a republic. And the Democrats, it is supposedly democratic. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, like, it isn't a republic. Yeah, it's slightly confusing the way that those two things go against each other. Yeah,
1: it seems to happen a lot, but also for probably very similar reasons. And it's almost like where our histories split or mm. something like that, you know, as in, or start yeah. and haven't been together because, at all.
0: Yeah. Because this is one of the things that, you know, America as a new nation and all the ways that they're kind of worse than us, for example, in the way that their structure is quite explicit in that they have an elected head of state the president who you know is at least supposedly chosen by the people mm-hmm. and that they have a specific constitution which which grants them specific rights that we don't we don't really have a constitution those things are quite advantageous for doing politics and so the fact that we have never shed that aristocratic class who are kind of unaccountable democratically but the queen is the head of the state and that laws need royal ascension to be passed in as much as they're kind of ceremonial, the very fact that they're so foundational, it can be seen as a problem. And also
1: how ceremonial are they in terms of the actual role that they play yeah. versus how they're presented? I mean, I don't know the answer mm. to that question, but so it's not meant to be kind of uh, provocative beyond a question. Mm. I was watching an interesting video of Yanis Varoufakis talking, the ex Greek finance minister. I'm pretty sure that's where he
0: was. Yeah, he was um, in Syriza, who was the kind of further left government who only lasted about five months. Yeah.
1: yeah. But he's uh, Tom's new favorite. Yeah, he is my new favorite. I've got lots to say about him, but that wasn't, but I won't right now. The one thing that I was going to mention is a thing that he did, uh, he said in a, a, a talk that he did, a TED talk. We'll put this in the show notes as well. Yeah, where about democracy and the role um, of capitalism and every, the, the relationship between the two. I can't remember the title. But what he speaks about is a really interesting thing, which is along the lines of and I'm going to really butcher it. So um, enjoy. <laughs> it, but that democracy was never able to exist until it was split from economics and basically the way that that was achieved was in the system of like capitalism splitting the two spheres and making economics one which is completely undemocratic i.e corporations and sort of companies that have absolute power to do what they want within their companies and then politics which is democratic but then the, the relationship between the two economics and sort of corporations and whatnot are corroding at the politics and eating mm. away at the democracy that was established even in that sphere. Yeah. And he spoke about the relationship between the two. And I found that really an interesting sort of thing, because in terms of our history and how democratic things have been in the past yeah. and the role of the monarchy, you know.
0: That's a really interesting point I haven't really heard before, the fact that the democratic idea emerged with capitalism, where they kind of separated the two, economics and politics. Yeah, I haven't really heard that bit before, but the bit I have heard quite a lot about is the idea that, you know, it, it's kind of, tacitly just assumed that capitalism and democracy are very, they work very well together. It's actually, I think that's why that video is really worth a watch. And um,
1: the way he talks about it sort of acknowledges that and bringing it back to sort of the monarchy and and the, the specific conversation we're having and the background that in some of the coverage I've been able to consume in the 24 hours since I watched the interview, the history seems to go back as well further than but to the english civil war
0: Mm. shall i I talk very quickly about like the really broad history like extremely broad history of context well i I would even say you should talk very slowly (laughs) (laughs) okay um because in in a kind of extremely zoomed out way like what's something that's quite important to understand is that before capitalism there was feudalism And in feudalism, the ruling class or the aristocracy and during, in a kind of stilted process that was very violent and changed in lots of ways, we underwent a transition from feudalism to capitalism. And a turning point of that in France was the French revolution where the people basically seized the wealth of the aristocracy, killed a lot of them, chopped off all their heads and then established capitalism. And like the bourgeoisie became the ruling class, but in Britain, what we have with the royal family so
1: sorry to interrupt yeah. um defining the bourgeoisie for people oh, yes. who don't aren't familiar with yeah. it.
0: yeah oh that's very good so um yeah so under capitalism in a marxist critique lens the the bourgeoisie are the ruling class who own things they're the owners of quite often it's termed the means of production so the kind of the things that are needed to produce goods and services so in the kind of industrial revolution it was the owners of factories and then the proletariat were the workers who didn't own the things that they needed to produce things. So they would be the workers in the factories. And it's since become like very complicated, but that's the kind of simple foundations from which those terms are brought.
1: Yeah. And so the transition from feudalism into capitalism was the proletariat overthrowing the bourgeoisie.
0: Overthrowing the aristocracy.
1: Arith- aristocracy. Yeah. And what was the role of the bourgeoisie? They were overthrowing them. Yeah. Okay, so the bourgeoisie were overthrowing the aristocracy, proletariat weren't in that sort well, of... It, of... It well, it,
0: then it was kind of a different paradigm, because under feudalism, yeah. you had like different classes. And so yeah. pretty much through the overthrow of the aristocracy, the the classes of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat were established as classes, really. Yeah,
1: so we are also we're sort of talking about the bourgeoisie, and but at a point where they didn't exist to their into their existence, yeah. where sort of the transition from feudalism yeah. into capitalism was the was the beginning of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, i.e. the workers
0: and the owners. And during that transition, the bourgeoisie were beginning to emerge with the aristocracy, and yeah. through that process, it, yeah, is what happened. And so, what the royal family is functionally is an aristocratic class still existing from feudalism to today. And the reason that they're defended as kind of not being that is that they don't play too active a role, but they are really an aristocratic elite who own masses of land across the country, who own masses of wealth and who are not democratically placed. So they are kind of a vestige of aristocracy today in a way that America doesn't have. And so a good, a good simple way of couching this Meghan stuff in, in a broader lens is that the two of them are leaving the British ruling class, the British aristocracy, and joining the American ruling class who are more racially diverse, wealthy, but at least supposedly for their kind of achievements. So even Oprah is a good example because yeah. she's often casually claimed as the Queen of America. And she kind of fulfills yeah. a similar role in a different way. And so now if they're moving over there, they're very wealthy, they're doing all this media stuff, they've kind of joined the ruling class of America. Yeah. And there's important differences.
1: Yeah, I was watching something that spoke about that and sort of how, uh, with with exceptions, you know, and whatnot, there's there's a majority of individuals within the, the, the ruling and wealthiest classes of America that are to some extent self-made or very recent like as in it's recent wealth you could almost say is
0: yeah it's new money like they quite often say new money and old money the old money is like the aristocracy the new money and the new and the new land right is america as in in terms of a kind of narrative of history like they 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 literally in the american civil war they cut ties with the king very explicitly and formed a republic and wrote a constitution
1: yeah. Well that's so talking about the, the wealthy and, and everything. I mean so a plutocracy, right, is government by the wealthy. Yeah. And in America, I guess the money in America and its role in government yeah. is is also is something we'll talk about another time. But so the money is, yeah, new money in America. They've moved into the well, the wealthiest of the classes in America yeah. in order to get away from yeah, the, the, the industry. Yeah.
0: And I think I think you can make you can make good distinctions where you say you know, you might not be a fan of capitalism, but you might agree that capitalism is better than feudalism. And so you could say that a wealthy elite who kind of run the country through their wealth is maybe marginally better than people who were born through a bloodline into it. You know, you could you could maybe say that's slightly better, but to still say it's very bad. I think that could only exist
1: for a couple of generations until the money's not new money anymore. And then yeah. it's, they've inherited it and they've inherited the power and we're back to where we were but yeah. through a slightly different start point. Yeah, so,
0: but, um, but one of the insidious things, and and this is why the issue of race came up so centrally, is that the very idea of a direct bloodline, and and actually, yeah. actually I think this is a good thing to talk about where, do um, you know like the God of the gaps theory? Yes. The idea that like everyone believed in God uh, and when... and. It, God was always invoked to explain the things that people didn't understand at the time. And every time something was understood where it was meant to be God, that the kind of role of God was reduced until it comes down to a point of you have to believe on faith or you have to invoke specific examples. I think a similar thing can be drawn out with the arguments for the defense of monarchy, where originally in feudalism, the monarchy literally divined their right to rule directly from God divine right of kings that's called isn't it The divine
1: right god's mandate is another word for it
0: yeah and so that's one of those things where if you live in feudalism and you believe that's true then i if if i if i lived in feudalism and believe that true i would definitely want the monarchy to be in charge because if god has appointed someone to do that and you believe in god you want that to happen right and so that's something that obviously has been challenged since i mean there's probably like a few unironic divine monarchists out there but, but hardly anyone believes that And so each time it's been watered down to the point where now, as you said at the beginning, one of the most often cited defenses is to do with they bring in more money than they cost us. No, definitely, definitely.
1: I think that's a really interesting way to frame the two situa- the two examples of and and kind of in the different points in time because it's also really hard to kind of look at things when you're inside it isn't it and kind of always oh, Absolutely. reading hi- reading about history that's where kind of history yeah. plays such a key role in this is understanding kind of the currents uh, that we are experiencing yeah. the the forces of you know from the past in marxist terminology is it material what's the the wording there sorry just so i can familiarize myself with it
0: yeah, that would be an analysis that's based in like historical materialism.
1: That's one. Okay, cool. Yeah. So another word that I thought I'd um, bring up is eugenics in a sort of yeah. in in relation to the bloodline point that you were making there, and sort of reading its definition uh, because it'll mm-hmm. do a better job than me. The study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. Developed largely by Sir Francis Galton as a method of improving the human race, eugenics was increasingly discredited as unscientific and racially biased during the 20th century, especially after the adoption of the doctrines by the Nazis in order to justify their treatment of Jews, disabled people and other minorities. But the mm-hmm. the, the role of eugenics here in terms of the points that you were making there and the sort of the bloodline that we started talking about i
0: just thought i'd bring up that word i mean yeah no that's that's almost that's almost where i was tempted to go as well in terms of you know they're kind of directly they directly inherited power just by happening to be born into that family and that family happened to be in power because like their ancestors were more kind of effectively violent than others and were believed to to divine their rights to rule from god directly which now no, no longer people believe um, and so this idea of like, they've got a very shallow gene pool and there have been like white, always. they've always been white. And so this idea of even a woman who's kind of mixed race and whose son is now a quarter non-white being something that would be controversial kind of shows you the extent to which it's very about kind of diluting. Is that And it's very similar to the idea of eugenics where it's kind of a pure, like something in the blood is passed down. And you kind of, you kind of implicitly consent to that in some way through your support, even if you kind of don't agree with the specifics.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just trying to find the exact quote um, to bring it back to the interview that um, Megan mm-hmm. sort of was talking about the, the the remarks that were made, which Harry later came along and sort of acknowledged as well, relating to. Now, I didn't pick up in the interview itself uh, it being referred to as a member of the family that had made the comment about the the color of the baby when it's being when it was born what it would be you know and but i'm seeing in all of the papers and everything else that i'm consuming that it was someone from the family and that it's since been confirmed by oprah that it wasn't the queen
0: and yeah because because harry said that he wouldn't name the person because yeah. it, he thought it'd be very damaging to them specifically
1: yeah and I thought at the time I was like fair enough and, and I didn't quite realize how much they'd narrowed it down without saying who it was um because yeah. I, hadn't picked <laughs> I up know you're the just
0: crossing people off <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah they'd only given four possible ones and then two of them were taken off something like that it sounds like is or at least that's the way it's being perceived I don't even know yeah. if that's the case and so it's got to be we've got to be careful there because I, I think that's yeah. a really dodgy way to talk about it definitely so the quote I can't Um, quite remember what it was but i think that's a really that was a pivotal moment in the i can plug it in yeah pop it in play it now
0: concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born
1: do you have any thing to say about that quote i felt it had to be mentioned in the podcast but before i ask my next question
0: no yeah um because i mean that that's like uh, the kind of central point around which all these like race this stuff about race is coming up is orbiting around because a lot of the allegations of the reasons that Megan was treated so differently by the firm they they are pretty much uh, alleging that it's, that's because of race.
1: Yeah, I know. Well, so this is the other thing. And um, again, you might know more about this, so you can clear this up for me. Um, the, the, the point was made in the interview by both Megan and Harry that they had been told that they were being cut off so they were cut off from um the finance from finances um early last year i think it was i think it was early 2020 yeah and harry made the point that it was his inheritance from his mother that got him and megan and archie through the period where they'd been cut off yeah and and so around that same time they were Hoping that security wouldn't be pulled, and it was just as COVID was hitting, he he made the point that um, they got con- it was confirmed that security was being pulled, which is why they moved from Canada to America quite quickly, and and were able to yeah. find themselves a, a place where they were able to have security. So the mm-hmm. the firm pulled security off of them at a point where they were otherwise not going to be able to um, sort of sort it out for themselves, and and they 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 saw that as being related, and the world to- knew where they were. The world knew where they were because it was published, right? Yeah, exactly. And they, they connected that to the the point we're making here about the the way that the firm was treating them because of the colour of the, of the unborn child. I mean, of, of Archie or, you know, as in, I'm pretty sure they related the two to, to each other in the interview, didn't they?
0: Yeah. And the kind of the, the treatment in the press as well is very racially based and something important to talk about. And what they painted a picture of was the idea that the kind of pact between the royals and the tabloid press in the UK is quite quite a tight pact, really, and that the the, the royals who would kind of invite the moguls of this kind of media empire into the palace and would like wine and dine them and everything would, would receive very positive coverage. And that Meghan and Harry didn't do that as much and so received like a lot of kind of extremely negative lots and lots of press and a lot of that press was based on issues Mm. of race because that kind of media is like race baits a lot
1: they um they drew comparisons between very similar stories well i say similar sort of you know um Mm. (laughs) so an avocado or something you know um yeah and uh, was it kate middleton and the story about sort of her and mm-hmm. how nutritious it was and then the story of megan and how like kind of it's related to deforestation and, and like i mean she's she's like burning down forests when she has avocado on toast and I, yeah. <laughs> it's those sorts of like obvious contrasts in the same story by the same paper almost you know kind of but about two different yeah. people that show that stark kind of um bias towards particular people mm. and they, I can't remember the name that they gave the parties that they throw the press but they, they throw parties for the press don't they and it's sort of like and he called yeah. it the invisible handshake or the invisible contract or something like that yeah um, as to that knowledge that if they didn't if they weren't careful if they didn't speak you know if they weren't careful not to speak out about certain things and whatnot then they would be then subject to this torture by press
0: yeah and so like in terms of the generational divide you quite often hear the idea that, you know, young people aren't as wedded to the idea of monarchy because they didn't kind of grow up as enmeshed with them. But there's also the fact that younger people are, are less propagandized by the tabloid press quite mm-hmm. often. And so like that is also a, a quite a powerful force that's not easy to disentangle. That's true. That's true. And
1: also, I guess when it comes to how we want to tackle the rest of this conversation... Obviously, mm. I'm I'm conscious that there's there's two very there's a very important current topic that we need to cover, and it's 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 what came out from the, the Meghan and Harry interview, and then there's the other stuff which is also distracting us about the kind of the role of the monarchy and kind of what it it, it sort of yeah. and its existence in the first place.
0: A lot of the debates between people, they're kind of having a proxy debate about the legitimacy of the monarchy whilst talking about this issue. Yeah, and it's kind of difficult to disentangle what they're saying to those things because. If you are very wedded to the idea of the monarchy and it being a good thing, and they're mostly good people and they mostly do good things, then it comes down to the idea of belief, right? Because you could just say that you don't believe anything that Harry and Meghan are saying here, that they're entirely doing it for their own reasons. And so a lot of people who are already wedded to the idea of monarchy say, and this is like even conversations I've had with family and stuff, is like, I find it very difficult to believe her. But people who are very against the monarchy and think they're kind of intrinsically unjust, undemocratic and all this stuff and have a history of covering up all kinds of things, you might say, I find it difficult to un- to believe the palace's kind of uh, dismissal of them. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's so tightly connected to those things. Definitely. So do, do we want to try and untangle the two? Yeah. And,
1: and to do that, do we want to talk about, shall we talk a bit, shall we come at it from talking about the role of the monarchy currently? How and quickly run up at how what it is currently and and so we have that picture of the firm almost and then mm. very specifically talk about the interview and sort of try and look at that through the lens of what we the history we've just covered. Yeah. I mean we've already done a bunch of that so like kind of I don't think it's a reset. I just I was just thinking timeline should we do a quick timeline? Yeah. It, so starting with sort of the English Civil War and the the parliamentarians and the royalists sort of that's th- th- those are the two that clash. So I guess by by name, you kind of you have the parliamentarians who were the roundheads, and the roundheads were the supporters of the parliament in England. Mm. And then you had the royalists, which were the cavaliers, and those were royalist supporters of King Charles the First. And so king charles the first sort of he he'd been i mean it seems like and i don't know enough about this to be able to say specifically but you know english civil war was a kind of a mixture of multiple wars there were the the wars of the three kingdoms it sounds very game of thrones doesn't it
0: well well, yeah well the the point is that game of thrones sounds very british history right sure because (laughs) because you have like hadrian's wall as the ice wall and and like a lot of the geography is almost upside down uk stuff yeah but yeah it does does sound like um and
1: so the Wars of the Three Kingdoms were a, a whole mix that started off with, I think it started in Scotland, like, and I think it was about the role of the church in Scotland. And Charles I was trying to intervene with the powers that the church had there. the The wars ultimately resulted in the overthrowing of King Charles, right? and his, was it his head that they claimed? Do you know the sort of the way that the, the war concluded?
0: Yeah, yeah they, they, they executed yeah. him. Yeah, so, so the, that moment was very important because the people who were conducting a trial for him had to invent a new legal process through which they could try a king. Because in that system, the king, as we said, was kind of divinely appointed. And so they literally had to kind of create the legal framework to be able to put him on trial. Interesting. And they found him guilty and they killed him.
1: And so following that, there was a a period, the interregnum interregnum do you know what that is it's basically be- interregnum interregnum yeah um between the execution of charles the first and the arrival is of his son charles the second which was a gap of 11 years so from 1649 mm-hmm. to 1660 and the, the return of charles ii marked the start of the restoration the Stuart restoration which mm-hmm. was the Restoration yeah. of the Stuart monarchy in the kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland, which took place in 1660, and the preceding period of the Protectorate and the Civil Wars came to be known as yeah as the Interregnum. In 1689, the Bill of Rights was where, was um, created, and that was a landmark act in the constitu- constitutional law, and set out civil certain civil rights which clarifies. Who would be next in line to inherit the crown as well? So yeah. that was it. Was received, uh, it received royal assent as well. You know, so that was even yeah. receiving um, royal assent.
0: Yeah. So so important context there in terms of comparing internationally is in a country like France, you had a very clear cut off. Literally, the heads were cut off, um, and they kind of rejected the aristocracy. And they're now uh, like very seriously looking at the idea of having a nation that is governed by people who are elected and like what that means so that kind of that was a springboard to lots of discussion and like theoretical kind of work that was done on what is a nation what does it mean how can you govern it whereas in england through this kind of protracted process of merging like the idea of parliament and the monarchy we didn't really have a similar level of interrogation of that idea mm-hmm. you know so so it's kind of it's never really been directly kind of worked on the idea of what is the state what is it for who governs it that's something which is still kind of up for grabs really
1: yeah yeah That makes a lot of sense and so following that period i mean i'm sort of jumping now what seems to be a significant amount of time but into Mm -hmm. sort of the industrial revolution and the great war sort of toward that period of time so sort of 1851 Mm -hmm. to 1928 And so that seemed to mark a significant moment in the sort of the the transfer of power as well, because it was when money sort of moved into urban Britain from rural areas and sort of moved from the influence of old landed aristocracy and towards sort Mm -hmm. of the importance of urban business, which is what kind of created the middle class. And it was what fed into the balance of power changing and the country sort of having previously only had the aristocracy involved in politics now a new middle class was getting involved in politics.
0: Mm, mm.
1: And so that period as I was sort of saying the Great War then kind of came uh, and and was toward the end of that date range that I was just mentioning and that also played a, a significant role based on what I've been reading but yeah. I haven't sort of done a significant look into the politics of that. Do, do you have um, any context there?
0: not really just like on on the larger scale that it it, it kind of represents not you, you can't really call such a clear distinction of like a kind of change of paradigm like a paradigm shift right it was kind of a like a growing process that was kind of gaining here and fighting back there and very complicated by all kinds yeah. of things um and they kind of enmeshed into a kind of at first very unstable coalition of monarchy and elected parliament And it's kind of become more seemingly stable over time since then. Yeah. And basically it was a slow erosion of the powers of the direct powers of the monarchy and parliament overtook the powers of more and more things until the aristocracy is still there, but don't have explicit huge amounts of power.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was kind of almost 300 years of history sort of Mm -hmm. in six sort of key moments or whatever, but there was obviously a lot that was happening in that time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And like one, one random fact, which I didn't even know until very recently, was, uh, did you know that the Prime Minister meets with the Queen every week?
1: I did, yeah. Yeah,
0: I didn't know that until very recently.
1: Uh, well, I say I did, and I, I did because I think that it's the Crown that probably made me aware yeah. of that. Um, but I don't know if I knew it to still be the case um yeah. or if i did that sort of a very, like it's one of those things where i've like left it alone for long enough that i can't quite um mm. uh tell you that it was definitely that's interesting so it tells the queen what's going on every week
0: mm-hmm. yeah so talking right up for now then
1: yeah, and, her, and the, the involvement of the Queen, just very quickly in terms of some of the laws that were being passed, something that we were going to talk about in a previous episode but didn't get a chance to, and because there's always so many things to talk about but it's now really relevant, is the, the role of the Queen and her lobbying government to change draft laws and the fact that she does have that ability and has used that ability in the hundreds of times. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but especially mm. when it sort of pertains to something that might reveal her private wealth. She's had significant involvement in changing yeah. laws, which were designed to create more transparency so that <laughs> her finances
0: weren't revealed. And and that was through an archaic process that was kind of very obscure. Like we, we don't have records of when it happens and what it does. Everybody knows about royal assent, which is the idea that like once a law, once a new kind of policy change has been passed by Parliament and the House of Lords, then it gets royal ascension. So the Queen technically could say no, but never does. And so through that process, the Queen like says basically yes, and then that becomes a law. But there's this other process, which is not nearly as well known about, where any law that's going to, af- that's going to affect the Queen, even seemingly very tangentially, is kind of seen by the firm, and they can seemingly make changes. And then a very specific example of that was found by journalists in The Guardian, I think, from the Royal Archives. Yeah, it was. At a time when, as you say, like it was laws which were going to affect her in disclosure of wealth and things, which was changed in a very specific yeah. way to not apply to her.
1: Well, absolutely. And then, I mean, The Guardian also posted an article in February about Prince Charles betting laws that stopped his tenants from buying their homes. Mm um which is interesting because he's got lots of property developments hasn't he um he's got yeah. actually
0: near where where we are i, I mean an hour yeah. away or so in- and like and, and that's directly linked to like landlordism the fact they own so much land they're kind of like super landlords in the sense that you know that also comes from feudalism right the lords of the land owned that land the serfs worked on it these aristocracy these lords and the royal and the royals own swaths of land across the country to this day and they get lots of money from that and it's not clear how much. Yeah. The
1: fact that Prince Charles can have a role in vetting laws as well and he's not even the queen. is yeah. I mean he soon will be the queen. Well, that's not to speak Ill of yeah. the queen but I mean yeah.
0: Yeah, the one thing I want to pick out then as like an important almost like a specific point is that Queen Elizabeth II, who's currently the monarch, is one of or possibly the longest reigning monarch in human history. She's very popular, 75% plus when polled of like the public of the UK support her, think she's good. So a a lot of the kind of reputation of the royal family is based around how people feel about the individual of the queen. And so she's going to die in the next few years, right? Because she's like 97. Her mum lived to 101, so to very old, but it's going to be in the next few years. And then The crown will be passed to Charles, who's not a very popular figure, and he may abdicate to William. She's
1: 94, by the way.
0: 94, okay. Oh, I didn't know he might abdicate to William.
1: Or is that just sort of a thing? uh...
0: I think that's something that people think. I don't know if there's any
1: reason to believe that. I think it's uncommon. I mean, obviously, the Queen's dad had the the crown uh, abdicated to him, didn't he, from... So, so I, I mean, that's in the Crown as well. So, um, I'll, mm. I'll leave it to people who go and watch the Crown. Yeah, um, yeah, okay, exactly. And so, so when the Queen passes and the monarchy changes, well, does the monarchy change hands? That's something that I'm. I mean, is it the monarchy? Is that like a, a a role that you pass on, or are
0: they all a part of the monarchy? That's just a not a, a naive question. Yeah, I think they're all a part of the monarchy and the crown, like the institution of the crown, passes. And so the head of state becomes someone yeah. different.
1: Okay, well, that's a, I think that's a good painting of a picture and a lens to look through some of the remaining points that we need to talk about with the interview. And in terms yeah. of that point that you made around sort of people talking about whether or not they can trust what Meghan said and, you know, like kind of that tends to be related yeah. to whether or not they're pro-monarchy or, or anti-monarchy... Do with that history what you will in terms of your the the way yeah. that it frames the power that they they still have that's been handed down to them yeah. very undemocratically.
0: And let's just quickly say, like the the tabloid press wield loyalty to the royalty <laughs> very effectively, almost like as an ideological weapon, because that's a wedge issue that most people think the, the monarchy is good, and so they use any criticism of that to be painted as un-British And it's like a very strong tool to increase the power of nationalism and also to kind of center issues around like race and nationalism, which a lot of the kind of particularly disgusting journalism is, or in in quotes, journalism is kind of done around. Um, And that like, you can see a very direct line of a reason that the press that's owned by people like Richard Murdoch would want to do that because it's a very easy way to divide people of the lower classes against each other. Rupert Murdoch what did I say you said Richard Richard I think what
1: you're doing Uh is slightly calling him Dick
0: yeah (laughs) Dick Murdoch yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) good job there Fred (laughs) yeah um no absolutely (laughs) (laughs) um so was there was there a specific thing that interview wise that you you wanted to like spend some time talking about before I like take us through random pieces
0: yeah Um, I think like some of the stuff we talked about almost jumps off from them is when Harry says the Royals depend on public perception for their continued existence. And for me, that, that exact moment was almost like the first domino falling in a process, which might eventually abolish them because, because the idea that the Royal family are very like strong and they rule over their subjects and everyone likes them and they're not going anywhere is something that can change very easily. Right. And that, that he painted a picture of their the royal family themselves are almost living in fear of people changing their mind and that's why this contract exists between them and the, and the and the public press to kind of continue to manufacture this consent for them
1: there's there's moments in um, the the Queen's sort of history where she's had issues around the general exception, or like accepting of the monarchy and the fact that they, they they exist and the role that they play, and there's things that they did. I think, like you know, fifty years ago, or whatever, um, to try and solve that, they would they were basically it's like a, a PR game constantly to to make sure yeah. that the, the the impression that they're giving off is one that gets the good approval ratings in order for them not to be subjected to too much scrutiny because of, of fear of the fact that they will be yeah. you know then questioned and ultimately potentially abolished and and it's the way that they have played that is
0: because they're a very archa- archaic idea. Mm. No, definitely, definitely.
1: I mean, especially during the period of time where there was quite a lot of socialist and kind of leftist movements in politics in in, yeah. in the United Kingdom. And during those periods of time, I think they had the toughest time of it, like kind of in recent history. And so they were constantly trying to manage that reputation and and find ways to to solve it. I've Just Mm. as we've been recording, the Society of Editors Chief, um, Ian Murray, has stepped down and resigned after a a rolling series of withdrawals from the National Press Awards over claims that there is no racism in the press uh, made his position untenable so
0: um mm. he sounds like quite an that was like the society of edited re- released a statement saying that like they believe that, that the accusation that the media is systemically racist in some way is entirely like unfounded and a lot of people even within the media were, were saying that's not true yeah
1: i wonder what the interest like i wonder what motives they would have to <laughs> say say that. yeah the society of editors <laughs> so that's interesting to see that he's stepped down yeah I didn't like that yeah yeah so the pr game being exposed by harry's comments is one of the on the early dominoes in this sequence of events
0: yeah and then another point which he made i thought he made quite a few points which you could almost feel the context like reverberating off them because another thing he said was you know i was trapped and they are trapped in it and oprah was you know saying how are you trapped as like a millionaire as as like a prince and you know yeah and like that that's good critiques to have, but at the same time, it can still be a very kind of toxic environment and a very limiting environment for people to live in, even within the institution. So you can kind of make a double argument where you say, we'd be better off without them, and they'd be better off without them. The kind of family dynamic is so strained and strange that they have all these kind of very particular and toxic emotional, like the way they express themselves, what they know, Megan was talking about, you know, she didn't have her passport, she didn't have her keys, she didn't have her driving license. Everything she did was very tightly controlled. It's not good for them. No, I, I know, I, I, it makes you question.
1: It's an, a really interesting place for them to be um, trapped. Actually, I was watching the last episode of um, Shits Creek earlier on today on Netflix, and uh, Moira, quite a funny, 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 funny character, um, uh, makes a she. She has a way with words, and one of the interesting things that she said almost in the reverse because like kind of the the premise of the the series is that people from uh wealth have been thrown into sort of a, a much more primitive sort of life experience that they sort of live in a motel room basically mm-hmm. and um and i i kind of almost mm-hmm. spoiler alert if anybody's watching it so i won't say too much but but she makes this point of like kind of you wouldn't be the first person to sort of fall in love with your captor. Was was something that she sort of was talking about, but metaphorically mm-hmm. about these sort of th- these the fact that they were trapped in a situation. And it's an interesting one because you you kind of I think something that people don't really grasp that often about this sort of thing is that idea that kind of how can you be trapped in a situation of like kind of wealth and what's the what, what's the word that kind of um, people use to describe that sort of Privilege. You can make that yeah. two-minute gap. Um, five seconds for me—that'd be great. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and so the the idea that they have—they are privileged and therefore sort of they aren't subject to systemic racism or or
0: yeah
1: a, a, a framework which from which they can't escape. And the idea that she couldn't leave her house and and you know these things that were implemented by the firm in order to sort of better the. The, the absolutely their position it's they they it's very easy to be trapped but there was something that Oprah sort of in, initially remarked on and I think a lot of people are going to equip as their kind of their point of contention with the whole idea which you're right it's sort of the way that what Harry said there has a lot of
0: gravity to it yeah and yeah like even even the kind of left wing ideas of kind of taking wealth back from the most wealthy right. Like, you, you can do that in a humanitarian way where even the people who have amassed huge fortunes, there's all kinds of data that, like, you know, life satisfaction and happiness doesn't increase over, like, the amount of money you're earning where you kind of don't have to worry about money very much. Yeah. Like, it doesn't continue to increase exponentially with the huge, vast amounts of wealth. Those people's lives won't get much worse and everybody else's lives will get much better. Yeah, and this- As in, it's... As not it's not just the idea of some kind of revenge of, like, you want them to suffer or something.
1: Absolutely. They... There's some interesting research into that, where you know yeah. there is a point at which that addiction, which sort of is bred within the greed of of that wealth accumulation of the top one percent and everything, it's just not grounded in any logic. I mean, the idea that they have first of all earned it, again, we're drifting slightly. We'll come back to this in another episode. but the idea yeah. that they've earned it is also um, a point of contention. But um yeah, I know what you, I know what you mean, and there's a lot of research that backs it up
0: yeah like like these people who are you know either the royals or billionaires they don't you know they don't tend to strike people as particularly happy people no and you know if if kind of increasing happiness is one of your yeah if that's like something you want to do then that's like an important thing to consider you know you might not be trying to do that but the specific experience in britain culturally and the idea that the kind of royals are kind of suffering as royals in specific ways, but that's kind of lauded as there's a kind of like a combination of suffering and duty and like doing all these things that is almost like fetishized, uh, you know, in the kind of academic use of that term in Britain. And a lot of that historical context and that cultural context comes from Protestantism in this country. And the idea that suffering is good is it's like nobling. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's enmeshed with all kinds of conservative ideology, like the idea that work, hard work is good for its own sake, like whatever the work is, if it's hard, that's good. It doesn't matter if you're kind of making the world better through your work or making it worse or doing nothing. Uh, All those things like, so talking about conservative ideology very specifically is very important to the kind of context of this argument, because all kinds of things like the individualization the kind of folk the hyper focus on individuals and whether they're good or bad like is the queen good if she's a good person let's keep her as the queen if she's bad let's get rid mm-hmm. of her we all like her so she's good to stick around you can have the argument on two levels you can say like you know to use a purposely provocative example say adolf hitler happened to be born in the monarchy and they were the, they were the head of state you know whether they're kind of good or bad you can't get rid of them there's not a process and so that the queen happens to be perceived as good by most people is kind of inconsequential, irrelevant to the argument of should that post exist as a like structure of society. And that conservative ideology doesn't look at structures and systems very much. It looks entirely at individuals. And that's like the way it kind of frames things. And so it's very difficult to critique the royal family from a conservative perspective. Um, and simultaneously with that, the conservative ideology is literally the idea that what we're doing is conserving things in society that work. So it's all about utility, right? It's like, if this seems to be working for us and we have a monarchy, if we change it, it might get worse. We're trying to keep things together. The idea of the antithesis of that is a progressive ideology where you think the world is always changing. It has always changed. We're trying to make it keep changing in a positive way. And we're trying to move forwards. And that is something from the past we don't need anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think it's it's a very consistent tactic that's used by conservatives to focus the argument on the surface level and like almost not pierce any deeper than that very top level of it's almost like shouting over someone who's trying to talk rationally or something and and it's that feeling of distracting you from the actual point of contention which logically would resolve in a way which doesn't work for their you know for for what what materially benefits them the most and it happens in lots of different ways and and this one specifically is is a very sort of obvious example of it it's it's all it's very it's culture war as well isn't it is is very much like that taking taking the argument away from the from any progressive sort of movement that is trying to make itself heard at
0: that point in time and you you see that transition from arguing on foundations, you know, originally, as we were saying, like you'd argue, well, the queen has to be there because God made, put her there. And that's like a foundational reason for them to exist. And then it moves into utility and it's purely, they do good stuff, it's working, let's keep it. And it's not like they should be there for a reason other than they're useful or they're doing something good. And and you can, you can argue on two levels. You can say like, they're actually not useful if you consider this. And also it doesn't really matter how useful they are if the foundational reason for they're there, like you object to that reason, like you can, that's something you can do.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I think we've covered all of my notes on it. I mean, there's so there's so many things that I think I quite like the fact that we focused on some pieces which I don't know are being properly covered by you know the more mainstream coverage of it. I mean, obviously, there's a whole broad spectrum of of what you're going to get if you look there but in terms of there's there's some pretty good 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 coverage that's out there talks very specifically i think about some of the main things from the conversation that was had which is some is something that i I mean i recommend people watch the interview you know um rather than getting it through some second hand so i think um there were things that i could have pulled out very specifically that were you know really in some ways very worrying i mean we didn't touch on the impact that it had on megan's mental health and the very real sort of recollection that you can watch her have of that time and you know um and i think if anybody really watches that relationship between her and harry they can see the support that exists between the two and the absolute sort of I, I, i i i i this is checking in sort of baggage um, yeah. My my viewpoint of it was that it was a very genuine um, sort of uh, conversation. I, I like the fact that one of the first things that they cover in the interview um, was that they they weren't paid for it, and um, and that one of the mm-hmm. first things someone said to me when I spoke to them about the com- the conversation was they probably got a lot for it. <laughs> so I think they did a good job of framing yeah. it well as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess like the the payment you know you could talk about coverage as payment and the kind of establishing a new career in a new country with that kind of this like massive media figure of oprah like that's kind of a, a form of payment in a way but the fact that they weren't yeah like monetarily kind of no, directly right. benefiting yeah. from it was, was there's true. a lot of indirect benefits in that sense you're right but um yeah no that's true um, but, but like all of our arguments we spoke about today don't hinge on the fact on on the specific facts of those things they were like an interesting way to jump off to talk about them
1: absolutely i think you know i was checking in the fact there that i believe the interview to be sort of a a sincere take on on the series of events it makes more sense actually when you look at what that interview is saying versus the coverage that is telling you otherwise and what happened at the time you know as in it makes sense and that's why i feel that way However, yeah, everything we've done there is like you say a step off to talk about other things which you can, you know, you can see in the, we're, we're reading we're talking about history. Mm. So, was there before we wrap up, was
0: there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Um maybe just like another kind of counter argument to the stuff we're saying that's often and then like talk about that briefly. Is like another reason that the queen is invoked as being a good thing is that you have someone who's at least supposedly less political, who can kind of do things on on the nation's behalf. Like they can meet people, international leaders, they can do stuff, you know, and a lot of people prefer the queen to Boris Johnson, for example, and say, well, we'd rather put the queen out as someone to represent our country than Boris Johnson. But the, the main difference between them functionally is that one has the consent of the people like supposedly, and one, could be great could be terrible we have no say
1: yeah that's a really interesting one that i hadn't sort of um thought to bring up but the the role of the queen and the monarchy and wining and dining foreign representatives and american presidents and the the role that the 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 royal family has had in recent history actually when it comes to sort of political dynamics and Sort of helping situations. I mean, they've had quite significant roles in in the recent past when it comes to getting presidents on side and making them feel like so. The the, the parliament, like the the prime minister, specifically uses the opportunity to get the queen to invite a president for dinner and to stay in order to have you know, to make progress with something that they're trying to, to get from whether it be the American president or someone else. So they have got a, a role. And in some time, in some points, that role has had a positive impact, actually, on those situations. But there's, you know, it, but everything you've just said is what the argument is to to dissuade people from that viewpoint.
0: So a lot of it is based in values. So a lot of our arguments about this specifically are if you have this value, then this makes sense. But some of them aren't just correct or false as in if you think nationalism for example is a good force in politics because it kind of cohesive like is cohesive to nations and then like the, the, the nationalizing force of the royal family are a good thing and so people talk about you know it makes us proud of our country it brings people together it like unites us we, we have a sense of our history all these kinds of things if you think that that's good stuff for good reasons then that's great if you think it's good stuff for bad reasons and you're purely weighing it up on utility, then you could say, maybe we should have it, but you can say like that, those are kind of not very useful forces in politics and it's bad, you know, you can make different value framings of it. And then just like briefly, like the, the idea that, um, Republicanism or abolitionism of the Royal family has never been in the policy set of anyone trying to lead the country as in like Jeremy Corbyn would be someone who you'd think would come closest to that because Seemingly his private beliefs, or like public beliefs previously, but not when he was leader of the party, were quite anti-monarchy. Yeah. But when he was asked the question um, in 2019 during the general election, he very tactfully they said, What do you think about the royal family? And he said, we need some improvement. <laughs> yeah, I remember. And that's as far as yeah. take I mean, it. well,
1: if they've got seventy-five percent approval
0: ratings. So in something so foundational a question, right? The fact that we have never been able to vote for someone who's who wants to get rid of the royal family that shows a lack of the democratic process. We we are physically incapable of expressing ourselves as individuals that we want this to happen because no one who's going for power has ever believed in it, at least in the last few decades.
1: Yeah, or hasn't been in a position to be able to express that belief because, I mean, you, you, there's also an element of, you yeah. know, in order to get into that position of power, th- the person running as prime minister isn't going to say something that has sort of majority... Uh, the majority of the population yep. not on board. I mean, the sort of almost the comfy feeling that the, the royal family has been for the country in recent history is something which, you know, they would have, anybody running for prime minister sa- saying that they're going to try and abolish the monarchy wouldn't necessarily have uh, kind of, they, they might have spalked their, their chances. Who knows about in the right. future though? Yeah, Sir here <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting i didn't know that Keir um was named after the founding hmm. the found like the guy who started the labor uh, party
0: is that right yeah Keir hardy
1: well that was a really interesting chat i think we covered a lot yeah and we will kind of return to a normal episodes next time probably and cover a few other topics revisit a few points maybe from this come back to things that we've we've spoken about
0: already look forward to other things and where can they get involved if they have some particular comments or questions because we'd love to like talk about it we would love to
1: yeah so if you want to drop us a voice message which we could actually play out in the podcast and um, Mm. have a chat about then you can go to trip to the left dot and you can follow the link there to send us a message if you would like to join our book club we actually have that running now i think we, we want people to join that um it's a discord server so it's for people who are familiar with discord i guess at the moment and we can put a link in the show notes for people to join that the idea there is that we will have a little waiting room for several people to join at a time and we'll spin them off into weekly or bi-week It's up to the reading group to decide how frequently they're going to convene and talk about books which we've got a reading list but equally you know it's subject to the group again to decide which order they want to do it in and whatnot and uh, to sort of involve themselves in conversations about some of the theories and ideologies and interesting takes of on very, very significantly relevant subjects that pertain to the sorts of conversations we're having here. So if you want to join the Trip to the Left Discord server, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can join the waiting room and then we'll spin you off into a group.
0: Yeah, and that very thing leads directly to the kind of mission that we're engaging in, that the things you f- the things you feel about stuff haven't come from nowhere. The things that are around you aren't accidents usually. And so like knowing more about this kind of Sea of culture we're swimming through as people is the mission. And so you can kind of challenge stuff you already believe, you can learn more about things and have reasons to believe them. Where it's almost like all your opinions are kind of floating on the top of this water that you don't really know what's underneath it unless you follow those back to their source, examine them, and see what you think that means. And yeah. like I thought, quite broadly, you know, in, we can't really get out there and do like physical political action because of the pandemic. So this time in particular, which is why we also wanted to start the podcast, this is the time to think. This is the time to learn. And like as we were talking about our context early on, it was only in the last two years that I probably didn't want a monarchy. Really. Yeah. It's like very recent, and it's, and it's very easy to come to this stuff and you know to engage with those things. And so if you've been listening to the conversation, you came in just extremely pro-monarchy. If like, we've given you something to think about, that's good. If you change your mind slightly, then... That's like an interesting process. And if you refute any points, then get involved and we can talk about it. So that's what we
1: we're trying to do. 100%. 100%. I I think it makes me it makes me think about this sort of recurring thought that I've, I've had recently, which is for every argument or debate or disagreement or, you know, rude fight on social media that ends in a block or whatever, uh, within this general discourse that sort of is always and I mean it it is it's getting louder isn't it as well the Mm -hmm. person who engages in the conversation in a way where they're able to get their points across and that their points are based in fact and and sort of read theory or it doesn't have to be physically read you know there's great ways to listen to this sort of thing those arguments are the ones that are going to will out and and ultimately conclude and it's my opinion that every conversation should conclude in an agreement. Everybody is in kind of across the world, no matter how radical their difference is, if they sat down for long enough and talked about every point of contention, they would ultimately sort of be able to concede in certain ways, which meant that one person wins one point, one person, and they'll come to the same structure of opinions. And the person who has the most points resolved in their favor is going to be the person who's better read or better sort of educated on the subject. So it's not to say that kind of, you know, we've all got to be super well read and everything, but it's just the idea of engaging yourself in the conversation. That's what we want to be a part of. And so it's whether it's listening to this podcast, whether it's joining the Discord server, whether it's getting involved in any of the other ways that we're going to try and do it, we just want people to be involved, engage in the conversation, listen to our conversation
0: and uh, learn. Being apolitical, not being interested in politics, not taking it seriously, not thinking about it is a very political stance (laughs) and that's something important to remember because you're basically just saying the status quo is okay and it's very useful for there to be more apolitical people to people who are in power so it's something you kind of can't you can't wash your hands of entirely yeah yeah and finally it's not just about kind of being apolitical but it's also if you can engage in a way where your kind of core beliefs you enjoy questioning them and you enjoy talking about them and you don't kind of hold them so tightly that you're holding them for no good reason then if you can like open open yourself to that process then that's where some of the most interesting and kind of growth based things can come from and that's kind of also at the heart of our mission here and so We'll, we'll always try to do that yeah. and we'll try to encourage you to do that yeah
1: i think across the things that we do the podcast is going to be hopefully an easy listen of uh, interesting points that you might not otherwise come into contact with with episodes that we're going to do elsewhere and other things that we're going to do which will dive deeper and you know we'll make it clear where we're doing the different things um so if it isn't something that you're ready to dive deep on we've got plenty for you there um but if you are ready to then we're also ready and we're going to be doing some of that as well the i i also appreciate that there's a lot of people who aren't ready immediately to go too deep in on stuff that they find a little bit overwhelming and so trip to the left is all about that journey and so um join us on some of those less deep dives as well and those those little paddles in the ocean we'll
0: take some little um what, what the holiday is called where like you go into it's, it's like staycations yeah 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 have little staycations and then some some big trips abroad you know exactly yeah we've done it exactly exactly um
1: so on that note i think it's time to say you bring the cheese
0: and i'll bring the crackers